Let's stand together for the reading of God's holy, authoritative word. Hear God's word to you this morning. Then Israel said to Joseph, I am about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you, as one who is over your brothers, I give the ridge of land I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength. Excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger, and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger, so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun will live by the seashore and become a haven for ships. His border will extend toward Sidon. Issachar is a raw-boned donkey lying down between two saddlebags. When he sees how good is his resting place and how pleasant is his land, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. Dan will provide justice for his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a serpent by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider tumbles backwards. I look for your deliverance, O Lord. Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders, but he will attack them at their heels. Asher's food will be rich. He will provide delicacies fit for a king. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring, whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility, but his bow remained steady. His strong arms stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helps you, because of the almighty who blesses you with blessings of the heavens above, blessings of the deep that lies below, blessings of the breast and womb, 
Your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, than the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey. In the evening, he divides the plunder. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. Then he gave them these instructions. I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite. The cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought as a burial place from Ephron, the Hittite, along with the field. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Thus ends the reading of God's inerrant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. Mm-mm-mm. Now this morning I'm going to go verse, no, I'm only kidding, I'm not going to go verse by verse. Just kidding, I want to scare you a little bit. We're going to definitely hit the main points this morning. And as we saw, chapter last week, we saw that chapter 48 was about what? It was about Jacob passing on a legacy of God's sovereign favor and blessing Joseph's children and also prophesying, I don't want you to miss this, about how God would be with Joseph and would take him back to the land of his fathers. Now, chapter 49 simply is a continuation of that blessing, of that legacy being passed on, but now he turns from Jacob's boys, right, to the rest of his sons, the sons of Jacob or Israel. And I read those verses from chapter 48 on purpose, um, and I want to reiterate verse 21. Then Israel said to Joseph, I am about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. So I want you to see what's going on here, and I, I just picked up on it toward the end of my study time uh, for this message, but it really hit me. Israel, Jacob in other words, what he's doing here is he's comforting his son because he's preparing his son for what? For his absence. He's not going to be around anymore. It's time for Jacob to leave this earth. And so what he's saying here is extremely, extremely relevant and extremely important for all God's people to hear in all ages. Now listen, when they're godly parents, when they're mentors, when they're disciplers, when the people who they look to to give them wisdom and how to walk with Jesus, walk in faith, when they leave this earth, how many of us, when we have these important people in our lives, when they leave, we feel, now what do we do? They've been such a huge part of our lives. But this is what Jacob's saying. This really hit me. I might be leaving you, son. 
but God will never leave you. Even though I'm going, he will be with you day in and day out in your ups and your downs, your times of of great distress and your times of great victory. The Lord, your God, our God, he's going to be with you. And And not only that, he will take you to your desired haven. He's not going to leave you until the job is finished. He does the full job. And so in his case, what what was he saying? He was saying God is going to take you eventually, you and your people, our people, back to Canaan, to the promised land. But in the New Testament, what is God saying to us? God is going to get you where? To the real promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. We can count on it. We can bank on it. The context of Genesis 48, the message is simple. And this is heavy too. Sometimes God shows you insights really late in the game, but I still I appreciate that I'm showing it at all. Here's the thing. What, what God is saying to Joseph, and this is a very relevant thing, I will not abandon you to Egypt so that you will be assimilated into the worldly culture. Ever think about that? You're not... Don't worry, your future does not lie in a pagan land with pagan gods. God is going to be faithful and he's going to take you out of that. And that's the same thing for us today when we look at the world system. The New Testament talks about the world as those who are not a part of God's church, of God's redeemed, of God's elect, elect, and how they will try to do what? Squeeze us into their mold, right? Romans 12. And the wonderful promise is, no matter how ugly it gets this side of glory, God will not abandon his people. He's made promises that he will surely keep. And that is a beautiful heritage. So for someone like me who loves genealogy, tracing my family line back hundreds of years, sometimes a thousand years, what's really important to me and what God shows me again and again, I hope he shows this to you too, no matter what ethnic background you are, is that What we're reading about right here in Genesis, this is our genealogy. You follow me? This is our history. We are engrafted into the very people, covenant people of God. So this history does not belong to the Jews only anymore. All of those who receive Messiah Jesus, this is like we're going back 10,000 years at least and finding out our history and our heritage. And that's a history that, and a heritage and a legacy that we claim through Jesus as our own. What a legacy, what an inheritance. So as we see, this is really cool here, verse 1 and 2 of, of 49. Jacob called for his sons and said, gather around so I could tell you what will happen to you in days, days to come. And then I love this line. I couldn't help it. Verse 2. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. All I could hear was, Avengers, assemble. I know not all your geeks like me, superhero But that's what was going on. He was saying, sons of Jacob, assemble. And they all come, you know, Captain America, Iron Man. And they're all representing the tribes. And we're going to see this. As Jacob blesses his sons in regards to their future, This is hard to swallow, but Reuben and Simeon are done. Judah is the one. And Joseph has overcome. That's what we're going to look at. 
Reuben and Simeon are done. Judah is the one, and Joseph has overcome. Let's take a look at the first one. Reuben and Simeon are done. Now, I want to mention this. There's no stinginess in the blessings of God. As it comes to the 12 tribes, Jacob has plenty of blessing to go around to his boys. Even though Joseph's given an extra portion, and his two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, are adopted as full-fledged children of Jacob, with all the rights and privileges thereunto, Jacob still has a blessing for each of his sons, although for a few of them we're going to see it's mixed blessings at best. So what he does is he makes his way down the list. He starts with Leah's children. Remember Leah? Um, his first wife, really. Remember? Uh, her dad tricked him, Laban. But he starts with her, and he starts with her boys. And naturally, he's going to start with the oldest. He starts with Reuben. And the way he starts out, it looks like things are looking up for the older son. So as Reuben's listening to this, the first couple uh, sentences, Reuben's thinking... You know, it's kind of like going to a, um, when someone has already died in our culture and they give you the last will and testament, the, the, the family all of a sudden shows up to that meeting, right? There's all other kinds of meetings you might not show up for, it, but this is what they show up because they want to know, what did I get? What did I get? So Reuben's all excited because he hears these words in verse 3. Uh, yeah, verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. So all he'd be thinking is mine is, man, show me the money. But then look at verse 4. Things take a sudden turn for the worse. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Whoa. So apparently there aren't only blessings, there are curses. Aren't there? Now, I found this really fascinating. Um, when we go through so many chapters, it's such a long story, you could forget a lot of the details. But this one I didn't forget. Now, if you remember, in Genesis, when, it, when Moses first mentions this heinous, heinous act of Reuben, it simply records this editorial remark. You thought it, you know, it would comment on it, but this is all we read back in Genesis 35 when, when Reuben did this, this horrible deed. Uh, verse 22 of chapter 35. While Israel was living in that region... Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it, period. No family meeting, no lecture, no calling Reuben out. It simply says Israel was aware of it. He knew what happened. But at that particular point, notice, he didn't actually do anything about it. Notice that? Simply says he heard of it. But now, it seems that Jacob waited for this very moment to call out his son publicly. Isn't that interesting? Before all of his brothers, at least. Because he wants all the brothers, as well as Reuben, to know why he's passing over him. There's a reason. It's because of this shameful act that he committed by defiling his father's bed. We know where it says in Hebrews 13, the marriage bed should be kept, what, undefiled. And we have to understand about God, yes, God's a God of grace, but he's a God of justice as well. And he means what he says. Um, as he says, and this also comes from Genesis, as you remember, shall not the judge of all the earth, what, do what is right. And in this case, 
He's meeting out the discipline for a son who shamed him. Because of this, he's out of running for leader of the tribes of Israel. And here's the interesting thing about Reuben. He will eventually be phased out of the 12 tribes altogether in the future. Let me show you where, uh, where I see this, where we see this. First Chronicles, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, when it's listing the sons of Israel, it says this. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, and then it has in parentheses, he was the firstborn, but when he defiled his father's marriage bed, his righteous firstborn were given to the sons of Joseph, son of Israel. So he could not be listed in the genealogical record in accordance with his birthright. And though Judah was the strongest of his brothers and a ruler came from him, the rights of the firstborn belonged to Joseph. So what's happening here? Because this stuff can get really confusing if we're not taking our time to pay attention. What's going on is you have Ephraim and Manasseh taking Reuben's place. Reuben's out. Ephraim and Manasseh are in. So the first in line loses his spot. Then jo Joseph, I mean Jacob, excuse me, moves to the, the next two brothers in line, sons in line. In order of their age, you got Simeon and Levi. And unfortunately, their future isn't much better. It's a little better, but we got some issues here too. Look at verse five. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed, there's the word cursed there, by the way. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. And here will be their discipline, by the way. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Man, when I'm reading this, the first thing that hits my mind is things are looking bleak for Leah's boys. <laughs> Not looking too good for this wife. God's disciplining hand of judgment has now fallen on them. Why? Because of their cruelty. Because of their anger and notice their sinful vengeance. Because of that, they're going to be scattered among the other tribes. If you ever wonder if God hates it when we take revenge in our own hands, this should be a good warning. When he says, do not pay evil for evil, but overcome evil with what? Good. And the one thing, even in the Old Testament, it's quoted in the New Testament, God says something very important, which we all need to take to heart. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You know, we don't have to worry about uh, the wicked, th their punishment being just. God will take care of that, and he will do it better than we could ever do it. And we're talking about unrepentant wicked, by the way. God already took care of our sins by pouring out his vengeance on who? On Jesus. But here's where it gets interesting for these boys. And um, it shows uh, God's fatherly care. It also shows that even in his judgment, there is compassion and there is mercy. Because the dispersion for both of these two boys and their tribes would end up looking very different for each of them. So for Simeon, Listen, for Simeon, it would literally mean losing their identity as a tribe altogether and being assimilated into the other tribes and eventually the ones that were left being folded into Judah so that they don't even get their own tribe anymore. 
So that's how that would play out for Simeon. That tribe would slowly whittle away and then be enfolded into another tribe and lose their identity altogether. But for Levi, this is interesting. For Levi, Levi, that tribe would also be dispersed throughout Israel, but in a very different way. It's fascinating. And you may recall this incident. I know Dave, Dave and I always talk about this incident because it's so interesting. It's in Exodus 32. You remember that whole golden calf fiasco? You remember Moses goes up to get the law, and while they're waiting, they can't wait anymore, so they, they, they tell Aaron, we want a god, make us a god. And, he, and they pour the... Um, they melt down the gold and they make the golden calf, you remember? And they start bowing down to this, this idol and they're eating and drinking and partying and whatever else they're doing. And you remember Moses comes down the mountain and what happens? He sees what's going on. You remember he breaks the commandments physically, throws them down, and he's upset. Well, this is what happens. In Exodus 32, Moses goes, who's with me? And he, he rallies the faithful. And it says this in Exodus 32, 26. All of the Levites rallied to him. Isn't that interesting? So the descendants of Levi, they all circle around Moses. They're basically saying, we're with the Lord. And so it's very interesting. Because of this, they have the honor of being the priestly class of all the tribes. So... Because of the priestly class, they don't get a land of their own. What ends up happening is their, their inheritance is not land, and this is actually an awesome thing. Their inheritance is the Lord himself. Isn't that awesome? I don't know about you, but I would hope that um, in my last days, when it's time for me to go, that God would be able to say, your inheritance is me because you stood true to my name by my grace, because you rallied behind my word and my gospel. That's exactly what Levi's tribe did. They said, we were with the Lord. So they get dispersed, but in a good way, whereas opposed to Simeon's, it's not so good. Um, commentator with the last name Leupold, he's a um, Lutheran commentator, he makes these comments that I think are real helpful. He says, here it is most evident how an apparent setback may yet be a blessing if those upon whom it is laid accept it as a wholesome bit of discipline. You get that? In other words, Levi took the discipline of the Lord and they turned to the Lord. In other words, in repentance and in faith. And God accepted them because they accepted his discipline and didn't kick against it, didn't complain about it. And again, in our lives... Um, the Lord disciplines who? Those he loves. Those he accepts as sons. And so here you have Levi um, making a good thing out of a bad thing. That's what's going on here. The bad thing is they were supposed to be dispersed. The good thing is they're the priestly class. It's actually God making a good thing out of it. But it's really when Jacob gets to blessing his fourth son, Judah, that things really pick up steam and hope for the future of all of God's people really begins to shine through. Because up to this point, we're like, mom, mommy, right? <laughs> I thought this was going to be where he's blessing his son. Well, now we get to Judah, who's fourth in line. Um, and it's interesting, he had to get to number four before he could get to who the leader of the tribes would be in, in many ways. Look at verse eight. Judah, your brothers will praise you. 
Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Which, by the way, Judah's name means praise. Your father's sons will bow down to you. And then you are a lion's cub. And we'll get more into that in a moment. I'll quote that again. But it's really clear from this prophetic blessing given by Jacob that Judah was destined to be the royal tribe. Uh, remember I quoted First uh, Chronicles 5, and what did, that, what did the, chronicle, the writer's chronicle say? He said, a ruler came from Judah. Now, Chronicles was referring to who? Who's the ruler Chronicles is talking about that's coming from Judah? David, King David. But we know who's the ultimate ruler from Judah. You remember when Jesus, when he first started his ministry, and for a Gentile like myself, when I would first read it, I remember when I was brand newly saved, and I'd read the Gospels, and I'd see uh, blind men crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. I was kind of like, what's this whole son of David stuff? And why is that so important? You have to understand what that blind man was saying. Jesus, I acknowledge you're the one. You're the ruler from Judah. You're the son of, of David. You're the king. And the irony, of course, in the New Testament is a blind man saw that and the religious leaders didn't. That's the irony. And notice it says in the text, the scepter will not depart from you. And, you know, again, that's kind of ancient language, just in case. The scepter is the royal ornamented staff that symbolize reigning and ruling. And what, what God is saying here is that will never leave your house. Judah, you're always going to have it. As a matter of fact, it's going to stay right between your feet until something happens. A very much anticipated future event. Until he who comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. That was partially fulfilled in David. But there's only one person to whom the obedience of the nations belongs. And you and I both know who that is. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the son of David. He is Messiah. And so right here we have Jacob predicting the coming of Christ. And what I think is interesting is way back here in Genesis, it's so important for us to see this, we see Messiah's rule will not just be for Israel only. It's all over the place. All the nations, people from every tribe, tongue, nation will fall at his feet and worship him in adoration and in the obedience of faith. That's what's going on here. Now, so when you read the Gospels, you have new eyes when you know the Old Testament scriptures. So when you see the Magi coming from the east, when Jesus is only two years old and it literally says they bowed down and worshipped him, we know what's going on there. We know it's beginning to be fulfilled, isn't it? The nations are beginning to obey this king of the Jews. Which that was written in mockery at Jesus' crucifixion. And they, the Jews said, take that down. Don't write king of the Jews. Write, he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Remember what Pilate said? What I have written, I have written. That was God overruling. No, he is the king of the Jews but also of the Gentiles. We know Philippians too, don't we? Every knee shall bow. 
and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. In other words, king, ruler. Now, the lights should go on as to why here we're just getting to go with this great story of Joseph and we abruptly, boom, first, uh, chapter 38, you get the story of Judah. Like, what in the... I was just getting into the story of Joseph and all of a sudden you want to talk about Judah. Why Judah? Not what's going on with all the other brothers because we see here there's something special about Judah. And if you notice something, I think it's um, really interesting when you look at it this way. We, I've mentioned in other sermons, Jesus is called what? The Lion of the Tribe of Judah in Revelation. Well, where in the world would Revelation get such an idea? Guess where? This passage in Genesis, going way back to the beginning. Because notice in, in, in our passage, Judah's likened to what? A lion cub. Did you notice it? A lion crouching down. It's the second one. And what's the third one? A lioness. It's right here in this passage. He is the lion of the tribe of the Judah. Why is this of Judah? Why is this so important? Because what you have to understand, people will say, you're reading into the text. You understand this? People will say, oh, you, this doesn't mean Jesus. And I, I, what we need to see is that's how the New Testament understood it. And the New Testament is written what? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So that's God's God-breathed interpretation of the passage that is right before us. And what's really incredible, just a couple more words on Judah. What's really incredible is Judah is in the genealogy of Jesus. You know that? When it starts listing the genealogy? Now, what's so incredible about that? Judah was a mess. Judah was not some superhero that never made a mistake. Judah wasn't even Joseph. You know, you look at Joseph's life, you're like, well, I, I, might, I might see why God might pick Joseph. But when you look at jo Judah, uh, he was a chip off the old block in terms of being like his dad, Jacob. You remember what he did? He thought he was sleeping with a prostitute. And who did he sleep with? His daughter-in-law. You remember that whole incident? And yet here is the wonderful thing about why he's in the genealogy. Martin Luther, I got a quote from him, he puts it this way. Judah too was not without sin, for he had committed incest with his daughter-in-law. But he had also showed mercy to Joseph and respect for his father. Nevertheless, in the case of Judah, God exemplified the fundamental scriptural principle that his blessings flow from love and mercy and not from any person's merit. Now, why is that so important? Again, it's important to see this because this isn't Ephesians. You with me? This is the book of Genesis. This is way back at the beginning. And what does it tell us? It tells us that salvation and God's favor is an unmerited gift of his grace. And so later when people wrap around, misunderstand the law and, and try to use the law as a way to work your way up to heaven, that's, that's wrong-minded already, even for its day, because it's going against what? The teaching of Genesis, which clearly teaches grace and grace alone in terms of salvation. Now the problem is, is how quickly, again and again, 
the church and us as individuals, we fall back into this merit-based religion, don't we? We get into this, well, maybe my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. We get in this whole idea that if I do enough, God will love me more, not recognizing that if we're truly in Christ by faith, there's nothing we could do to make God love us more. And there's nothing we could do that would make him love us less. That's what grace is. One more thing about Judah, and then we'll get to Joseph. Revelation 5, verses, uh, chapter 5, 9 to 10. We see that even Ephraim, who had the blessing of the firstborn, and all the rest of the brothers, including Judah himself, none of them were worthy. None of them could represent us. None of them can save us. They needed to be saved themselves. Because we find this in Revelation 5. And there's that great vision in heaven. We read this. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Uh, let me back up one second. What was going on is in heaven, you had the one sitting on the throne. And he had the scroll with the seven seals. And it says, John sees, no one was worthy to open the scroll with the seven seals. And so John, it says in the text, began to weep. And an angel said, no, don't weep. Look, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is worthy to open the scroll with its seven seals. And then we read this. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. What we have to see is because of Christ, we will reign someday. Yeah, I know. Take a look at us. We're, we're some sorry look at people sometimes. And yet we are going to be royalty. You know, th those health and wealth preachers, they got it half right, but the problem is they got it half wrong. You know, they talk about your royalty, God loves you, you're his child, and then their implication is therefore you won't suffer in this life. That's not the message. The message is, yeah, we might be humiliated now, but come then, we will reign. Just like Jesus suffered first, and then he reigned. All right, so so much for Judah. And then the last one I want to point out, we'll go through the other sons maybe on Wednesday, but let's point out this last big one, and that's Joseph. So Judah is the one, but Joseph has overcome. As I mentioned earlier, there's plenty of blessings that go around for all the sons, but Judah and Joseph, they get the greatest blessings. And if Judah would get the blessing of being in the royal line, Joseph would receive the blessing of the firstborn. Now, I know there's a lot of history here, but we really got to hear this. What's interesting is later on, Israel would be split into two, basic two groups. You'd have the northern tribes and the southern tribes. The northern tribe would be called by one name. Do you know what that name is? Ephraim. Ephraim would be referred to as all the northern tribes. The southern tribes, which was Joseph and ben, um, um, Judah and Benjamin, they would be just referred to as what? Judah. So the two who get the greatest blessings, that's what it ends up being split into. 
Ephraim and Judah. Interesting, isn't it? I thought it was. That's why so much time is already spent here on these two brothers. Now, what, what Jacob does here, he includes a summary of how God has blessed Joseph so far. And then he says how God, notice the, the way he refers to God, the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the rock of Israel, would bless him in the future. So we got, got to pick up what's going on here. So you got Jacob, an old man, on his deathbed, literally. He's only minutes away from death now. Remember we were talking about how long he was like? Well, now we can pay attention because he's only got a couple minutes left, basically. And we see he re recounts how God has been good to Joseph. Because look at the language he uses. How the bitter, in bitterness the archers attacked him, shooting at him with hostility. And notice, despite his dire situation, this is an incredible thing, Joseph's bow remained steady and his strong arms stayed limber. Now listen. Think about Joseph for a moment. We're almost done with our whole study of Genesis. We have one more message and that'll be next week. But think about Joseph. He barely escaped with his life. You remember that? They were going to kill him. Then he was thrown into an empty well. Then he was sold into slavery. Then he was falsely accused. Then he was thrown into prison. Are, are you with me yet? Then he was forgotten when the guy said he was going to remember him. Two more years to rot in prison. Devastating blow after blow, yet his life is a testament to what? When you think of Joseph, all you should be thinking of is these three things. Faith, hope, and love. I mean... Sometimes you wonder, you know, Lord, you call us to live by faith, hope, and love, but I don't know how it's possible. Well, look at someone like Joseph, who's a sinner like you and me, and you see that it can be done. That should be an encouragement, not a discouragement. That it's not all in vain. He's truly a remarkable man of God. And when you think about it, all I can think about is two other men in the Old Testament that are like him at all. And you know who the first one is? Job. Remember Job? No one like him on all the earth in his day? And who's the other one? Anybody know in the Old Testament? When you look at his life, you say, man, I don't see one sin in this guy. I know he's a sinner, but I didn't see any. Daniel. You got Daniel, you got Job, and you got Joseph. Now, I want to mention that, not to glorify them, what I want you to see here is Jacob reveals the secret of Joseph's success. You know what it is? Because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob. Because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. Because of your father's God who helps you. Because of the almighty who blesses you. So what was the secret? We read it a million times when we read Joseph's life. God was with him. So what should we be praying for fervently? What should we be seeking in our own lives? The ultimate blessing we should be asking for. Yes, God wants us to pour our hearts out to him, but one of the ultimate blessings we should be praying for is that we would stay true to our Lord and Savior no matter what we face in this life. 
That's blessing, isn't it? You know you're blessed when as hard as life is, as how many setbacks you have, as much as there's much sadness and sorrow, you still believe. There's an old saying from from Philip Brooks. He said this, Oh, do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. Ain't that the truth? And Jacob looks back on how God's already blessed Joseph in the past. And then that's the very blessing he gives to his children and the tribes that will bear their names, like Ephraim and then Manasseh after that. Now you can read about the blessing he gives for yourselves in your spare time, but our time's coming to the end here, so I want to jump to the end of the passage. I'm going to close now. When Jacob's done blessing his sons, he gives his last instructions about where to bury him in Canaan with his grandpas, grandmas, mom, his dad, and Leah, his first wife. And then Jacob's story in this life ends with these words. We've been tracking with Jacob for quite a long while. Look at verse 33. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, He drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Now that's a beautiful way of putting it. He was gathered to his people. Notice it's not referring to his burial with his relatives because that didn't happen yet. That's going to happen next chapter. So when it says he's gathered with his people, what does that mean? It's talking about the celestial shore. It's talking about heaven. It's talking about he is meeting with who? Abraham and Isaac and Leah and Rachel and Rebecca. How do we know this? You remember when the Sadducees thought they were going to trick Jesus about the resurrection? They asked him a a question about the law to try to make the resurrection look silly. And they only believed in the first five books of Moses. So Jesus said, you are ignorant of the scriptures. Does does not God say, I am the God of who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You remember what Jesus says? He is the God of the living, not the dead. So Jesus uses that to prove the afterlife. Isn't that awesome? What a beautiful thing. He pulls his feet up. He breathes his last breath and he's gathered with his people in the presence of the Lord. How often I've done funerals and you hear that saying that it doesn't matter who died, they're in a better place. Well, brothers and sisters, that's not always true. But it's wonderful that for God's people, it is 100% true. That if we are in Christ, when we breathe our last, we're in his presence. Which is by far better than being in here. It's better to be with the Lord. We're gonna, we're be, our next book, by the way, is Philippians. 
So we will get into that. I won't preach that whole thing. But I'm going to close with Luther. He says this, To this glory the Old Testament believers attained, and toward it we now hasten as strangers and pilgrims on earth, awaiting with patience our blessed hope in Christ Jesus. Let us believe in him, for then we too shall be gathered unto our people, and in God's appointed time we shall rise from our graves to life everlasting. And all God's people said, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful last will and testament of our dear brother Jacob, whom you loved. We thank you. You were his shepherd his whole life. Even in his dying breath, you were there to welcome him to his eternal home. And we thank you for the encouragement that we have that we, too, will be gathered with all our people, your elect, from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and some of them that we knew right here on earth, who we fellowshiped with, and most of all with our Lord Jesus, our Redeemer, our Rock, our Shepherd. Lord, please encourage us with these things as we go our way today and as we live life this week, help us to be ever mindful of them so that it will really make an impact on how we live here and now before your face and in the presence of our friends, relatives, and neighbors. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.